0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Daddy Unscripted. This is Tim Wheaton. I am the host and creator of the podcast. All of these episodes lately are getting all kinds of different intros and preambles, and this is no exception to that. I just wanted to pop in really quick and let you know that this episode is kind of from my archives because a lot of other... Osiris Media Podcasts have interviewed David Gans and I kept kind of getting close to releasing this episode and somebody else would release their episode. And even though there's no such thing as too much David Gans, I just didn't want to flood the market and I wanted to hold off on mine. So finally, my time is here to release this episode with myself and David Gans. Just wanted to let you know, it was recorded over a year ago, so none of the current issues plaguing and facing our country and our world were happening otherwise we absolutely would have put some time into discussing those issues as i know these issues are very important to both david and to myself so none of that is in this episode don't let that throw you off too much and i will bring you right into the way this episode would have started way back when so enjoy
1: Another great episode of my dad's podcast, Daddy Unscripted. My daddy is paying me under the table to let you all know what's in store. If you don't want anyone to overhear words like (coughs), canoe and mother, (coughs), we strongly suggest you use headphones for this episode. Now that you helped me earn a special treat from my dad, here he is with your treat. Another podcast episode.
0: Welcome, which is welcome in Dutch. Welcome to the Daddy Unscripted podcast. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the creator of Daddy Unscripted and the host of the podcast. And why am I welcoming you in Dutch? Well, that's what I do for every episode. I introduce you all to a new language with how to say welcome at the beginning and how to say farewell at the end. And I do that on my podcast because in enkeletal is nooit genoeg which means one language is never enough. And that is also in Dutch. So I'm really digging deep with this one. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope that it makes you want to go back and listen to others similar to it. If you are coming back, thank you so much for staying loyal. This is going to be another... This is now my second run of a unique episode of a guest that is not a dad. He is a son, however. And all of his life and all of his work just fits perfectly into the whole Osiris Media, what we are all about. And so I will take that perfect opportunity to let you know and remind you that Daddy Unscripted is very proud to be a part of Osiris Media and all of the podcasts that are involved with Osiris Media. And I'm going to tell you about an amazing Fantastic, glorious new podcast that came out via Osiris on August 5th, just recently. The podcast is called Comes a Time. Season one has now launched. It is a conversational interview series with musician Oteil Burbridge and comedian Mike Fanoia. If these names are not familiar to you, Oteil is a Grammy Award winning bassist who has performed with the Allman Brothers, Trey Anastasio, the Derek Trucks Band, and way more. He was a founding member of the Aquarium Rescue Unit and is also a founding member of And still playing with Dead and Company. Mike Fanoia is a comedian, a writer, and host of the other Osiris Media podcasts, Amigos with Mike Fanoia, and Still Chasing. Mike has been featured on AXS TV's Gotham Comedy Live, Sirius XM Comedy Central Radio, and with the Impractical Jokers live tour. Motil and Mike welcome guests from a variety of backgrounds, whether they are musicians, comedians, civic and spiritual leaders, activists, journalists, environmentalists, and a whole slew of others to discuss the road that led us to where we are today and where do we go from here. All the episodes will be available not only on audio, wherever you find podcasts, but they'll also be on video. You can listen to episodes one through five already, I believe and you can watch the episodes on youtube episode one was just the intro of the podcast episodes two three and four featured interviews with melvin seals bob weir and mountain girl upcoming episodes include interviews with grateful dead drummer mickey hart grateful dead roadie steve parish some other musicians and comedians and more RJB, the CEO of Osiris Media said it very well when he said, at this time in our country's history, we're proud to have a musician and social activist like Oteil bringing important conversations to the foreground. He also said, Mike Fanoia is a very smart, which he is, very funny comedian, which he also is, who brings a lot of perspective and humor to the show. Mike and O'Teal have a great chemistry that will bring out the best in their guests. We hope people's eyes are opened and that these interviews can help facilitate change when it's needed most. All of that is so very true. I'm ready for their buddy show on TV. Like, I'm waiting for Netflix or Amazon to pick these guys up. Not a buddy cop show, but some other kind of buddy. I don't know, maybe a podcast buddy show. So, anyways, make sure you check out Comes a Time find it wherever you find your podcasts. It shouldn't be too difficult to find because in their first week, they hit number one on Apple podcasts, which is fantastic. And if I could make a bunch of huzzah, hurrah and fireworks kind of sounds, I would do it right now, but just imagine those in your brain. So find comes a time. You can also listen to them through the Osiris website, which is at osirispod.com. Make sure you go there just to check out all of the other great podcasts that are a part of Osiris media. And the last little thing I'm going to remind you is that Daddy Unscripted is proudly sponsored by Harry's. Harry's just came out with their sharpest blades ever. And unlike some other razor companies, they're not charging you more for their product improvements. Their new sharper blades are still as low as $2 each. Those of you who know me, who know me really well know that I do not like to shave. If I could get around it, I would just let it go. Let it go and I'm not gonna sing the song, much to many of your disappointment. I'm I'm just not gonna do it. Let it let it grow might be a better one for you guys for this episode with David Gans. Let it grow is what I would love to do with my beard, but unfortunately, I have to shave, and when I shave, I use Harry's razors. Truly. Harry's new blades are so sharp that in a study with guys shaving four times a week, the guys reported that with Harry's new blades, their eighth shave was as smooth as their first. You may ask, How do they deliver quality at such a low price? Well, let me tell you. Harry's owns a German factory that's been honing razor blades for 100 years. They source their steel from Sweden, and they own the entire manufacturing process from R&D to the factory floor, and that allows them to keep their prices so low. You can confidently buy Harry's because they stand by a 100% quality guarantee on Harry's.com. And it's still just as convenient as ever. Blades are delivered directly to your door on your schedule, with or without a subscription. Give Harry's Sharpest Blades ever a try, and here's how. Harry's has an amazing offer for listeners of Daddy Unscripted. New U.S. customers can redeem a Harry's trial set at harrys.com backslash daddy you'll get a five blade razor featuring their new sharper blades a weighted handle foaming shave gel with aloe and a travel cover to protect your blade when you're on the go just go to harrys.com backslash daddy and redeem your trial offer today okay this guest today his name is david gans And I have known of David Gans since back in 1990, I would think. I came to know him through his radio show called The Grateful Dead Hour, which is a national broadcast, and he'll talk a little bit more about that. But he has been in the music scene since the 70s. He is a singer-songwriter, a musician. He is a writer. He wrote for multiple magazines and he has written books as well. He has also done photography and he has his radio broadcasts and he still tours all around the world and all around the nation with multiple groupings of people and on his own as well. And we get into all of that in this episode. So let me just get right to that. Let's get to the episode with David Gans. <laughs> All right, we are here today with David Gans. Very excited to have you as part of the podcast, David, so welcome.
2: It's nice to be here, even though I am not a father. I am definitely a son and a brother and a cousin and an uncle and a bunch of stuff like that, <laughs> but I have never been a father that I know of.
0: That's okay. We uh, Every once in a while, I, I can break the rules. It's my <laughs> podcast, so I can do what I want, I guess. But we've been talking about this for a while. And uh, as part of the Osiris Podcast Network, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's very um, music and culture based. We have a lot of podcasts that deal with music, and most of it is in the jam band scene. And uh, I know a lot of people, when I reached out to the group and let them know that I was interviewing you um, for my podcast, they were very excited to be able to listen to it when it's up and everything. So that it just makes sense to have you on regardless. I'm happy to be here. So, first we'll talk about I would love to we'll kind of work our way backwards because as we were just saying, uh you did have your is it your 11th or 12th album release this year?
2: Uh well, I released uh, Earlier this year, I released a record called Drop the Bone, and it's my 11th full-length record in 20 years. I've put out a couple of EPs and singles and stuff too along the way. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I've I've been a pretty prolific, independent recording artist for 20 years now.
0: Yeah, which is such a long story that you are telling with your involvement with the music scene and all of your different hats that you've worn in it and everything. It's really fascinating to me, especially because I've kind of had similar, some similar experiences, not anywhere near your success level, but as a person who was, uh, who is a big deadhead and fell into the scene and traveled to see them and everything, as well as I was very big into concert photography and still kind of do that here and there and used to love to write Uh, a lot of those things are things that are all feathers in your cap as well so i definitely find a very attractive story that you tell so maybe let's go back into that first so tell us about your start with music in general
2: well, I'm very, very lucky man in that I have been able to do music related things for a living basically my entire life. I had one job when I was in college that wasn't directly music related, and ever since then I've been doing writing, uh music making, uh wandered into radio completely by accident about thirty years ago. I, I just really just was a kid in San Jose, California, a college dropout. And all I really wanted to do was play guitar, write songs, and, and uh, you know, I changed the world, really. I came up mm-hmm. in that time when we really thought that music, you know, Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, Leonard Cohen, uh, Jackson Brown, all, all these musicians were writing music about our lives, and that's kind of what I came up doing. And somehow I've managed to make a living doing music-related stuff ever since. And uh, it's an entirely improvised life because I never made a plan to do
0: any of it. Which is great, which it fits perfectly into the type of music and that type of life as well. It just seems so symbiotic and that it would kind of take this meandering Trail that it has for you just yeah. seems like it works out perfectly.
2: It, well, p- perfectly. Uh, I, I, yeah, I imperfectly. Say, perfectly. Uh, it's you know perfection. Actually, it's funny you say per- perfectly because perfection isn't really a core value in the kind of music that I do. Right. That that thing. You know, the Grateful Dead taught me. I, I was. I was a a young singer-songwriter wannabe in San Jose, California in the early 70s and playing, you know, gigs at a coffee house down the street and things like that. My roommate and songwriting partner, Stephen Donnelly, had been trying to get me to go see The Grateful Dead for quite a while, and I, I didn't think I was going to be interested in it. Because I looked at some of the song titles and I didn't think I was interested in a, a band. You know, they had a song called New Speedway Boogie, and I didn't think boogie music was very interesting. You know, that seemed like kind of mindless party music. And then they had a song called Cumberland Blues, and I wasn't that interested in the blues either. And then they had a song called Ripple, which I thought must have been about cheap wine, right? Well, imagine my surprise when I heard those songs and discovered that they weren't anything like my shallow interpretation or shallow presumption had told me. And starting in March of 1972, I was really, really interested in The Grateful Dead because they kind of opened up my notion of what music is in all directions at once. Instead of trying to write songs, you know, that I could... Sell or you know make a singer songwriter record or whatever. Uh, this music it sort of uh, didn't tell you everything it knows the first time you hear it. This music sort of wanted you to come in and and listen and, and sort of think along with it. And I, I started with just the songs, which were interesting enough as they were, and I didn't really understand what was happening in those long stretches between the singing. And over time, I got to understand that what was happening on stage was a form of improvisation, a collective form of improvisation that I think of as conversational music. Mm -hmm. These guys were talking to each other on stage in those improvisational stretches. And once I got a handle on that, there was no going back. In 1973, I moved up to Berkeley, California, And a friend of mine from high school who was just moving back to San Jose gave me a phone number. He said, go see my friends on Aetna Street. They play Grateful Dead music. And I looked these guys up, and I went over there with my guitar, and I uh, met these fellas that I started playing music with, and and we continued playing music together for more than 30 years after that. Mm. So it really was the Grateful Dead that inspired me to expand my musical horizons and become what i think of as a more interesting musician yeah and i've been playing music with other people in this conversational forum ever since now that doesn't mean that i play grateful dead music you know in a tribute band i've never in my life been interested in being in a band that only did other people's music and i'll tell you the, the main reason for that, I think, is that I started writing songs and playing the guitar at the exact same moment. Hmm. I, I have an older brother, two years older than me, and he played guitar. And my little sister played guitar, too, a little bit. And I was the last guy to pick up the guitar. I had been playing wow. the clarinet all through school. Oh, wow. But my brother took a couple of my teenage poems and set them to music, and he taught me the chords. So the very first songs I ever played on the guitar were my own compositions. And I really have a strong belief that that made me a different kind of musician from the kind of musician who picks up a guitar and becomes obsessed with like Jimmy Page or Jerry Garcia or whatever, you know, and just completely absorbs somebody else's style. From the first moment I was playing guitar, I was also playing my own stuff and learning other people's songs, right? Mm -hmm. I picked up the Beatles White Album Songbook and the Crosby, Stills, and Nash First Album Songbook. So I started learning songs from other people, but I was also doing original music from the very beginning. And I think that affected my whole voice. You know, I began to develop my own voice, even as I was absorbing the styles and voices of other musics.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds completely unique. I mean, I'm sure there's other people that have done or are doing that. But every guitar player that I know, definitely was not starting out that way.
2: Yeah, and there there's something to be said for that thing, but I, it, it also means that I never had to go through the phase of being a local musician for hire and learning all the current tunes and stuff. I mean, when I was a youngster playing these coffee houses in San Jose, I was playing songs by other people too. Of course, I was way into Cat Stevens and Elton John and Jackson Brown and all that stuff, but I always mixed in my own songs with it. And so I, I I never developed that dependency on being able to play, you know, to like do to sell my music by the yard, as it were, you know, to, mm-hmm. like to play a three hour show of John Denver songs for you or whatever. It, it, those things I picked up along the way, but I was always interested in my own voice. Yeah, and I, I count myself as just insanely lucky that I'm now you know, approaching 50 years into my professional performing career with always being able to speak in my own voice,
0: Mm -hmm. which is so great with all of the people too that you are getting to mix in and out of those conversations that you're having musically, whether it's in studio or while you're playing out on the road somewhere.
2: I, I yeah the the Grateful Dead thing. I, there's a website called GratefulDeadTributeBands.com. dot com. It's run by mm. a lovely couple in Boca Raton, Florida, named Al and Janice Lucas, and it's basically they just volunteered to set up this thing and keep track of all the Grateful Dead bands that are playing out there in the world. And you mm. go to this site if you're you know on a business trip to Akron, Ohio. You can go to this site and click on your location, and it'll tell you, you know, where the nearest Grateful Dead band is playing. And there are hundreds of them all over the country. There are people who are way too young to have ever seen Jerry Garcia live, and they're playing this music, and they are fluent in this musical language. And it's a wonderful thing for me as a working musician to step up on a stage full of people I've never met before and have a musical conversation happen. It's it's a thrill and a delight. And I can tell you that my batting average is in the high nine hundreds. <laughs> there are very, very few experiences I've had that I that weren't enjoyable on, on every level. It, it's just if you speak this musical language and you want to have this conversation, you can find people to talk with. And it's yeah. just a wonderful and audiences to play it for. Right, right. This year in particular, my booking agent, particularly in the Southeast, set me up with groups of musicians I'd never met before. And twice on my fall tour, I, once in Asheville, North Carolina, and once in Atlanta, I walked into a club full of people, musicians on stage, and a group of people who had never played together before. There were pairs of guys who'd known each other, but the like five or six of us that were there— was the first time this particular group of people had ever played together, and with no rehearsal, by just having had a conversation before we took the stage on what songs we might want to do, we got up there and made fun things happen to houses, you know, audiences that were there to hear it and enjoy it. And it, it's that's it's such a thrill to do that, you know, to to trust the situation you're in, to improvise in a room full of people. And, and know that it will be okay. I trust my own skills and my passion for it. And the group of people, you know, it could have been terrible. It could have got on stage with a bunch of guys that didn't really know how to relate to each other. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, my agent knew the right guys to ask. And we had this conversation before we took the stage and it came off really, really well. It's a, it's it's a wonderful thing, and I think it's an important aspect of music that I'm happy to be promoting. Mm-hmm. The, the other way to do this, the opposite end of that extreme, and I learned a lot about this during my 10-year career as a music journalist in the 70s and 80s. I got to interview people like the Eagles and Rod Stewart and Lindsey Buckingham, you know, and so i got to hear all the other ways of making music and how the other ways to put a show together and i also got to watch the whole nature of the music business change over time from the era that i came up in which was dominated by you know songwriters and people singer songwriters and guys recording each other's songs and going out and playing original music Over time, the whole nature of that business has changed and record sales are way down and everybody now, the best way to make a living is to go out and actually play live and sell your t-shirts and stuff because you're not selling music into record stores. You're being heard on Spotify, which doesn't pay enough to live on, things like that. So the, the the whole music world has come around over the course of my musical lifetime to the Grateful Dead way of doing things which is to say, give an honest, live performance to a room full of people in real time, and that's how you make your living. And the recordings and the songwriting and all the other stuff that goes with it is driving your ability to draw a crowd and play live. The Eagles, for example, did this other thing. I saw them on the long-run tour, and I guess it was 1981. And they played, they got up on stage and they played exact, precise copies of what they had on the record. And I later found out by interviewing Don Felder that they did so with the exact same guitars, amplifiers, stomp boxes, and everything else that they had used in the studio. They literally brought with them on tour every single piece of gear they had used in the studio so they could recreate every song exactly the same. Wow. Now, the reason for this, as Felder put it, was, hey, if you paid 12 bucks to come and hear us play live and you didn't hear your favorite lick on Hotel California, you're going to be disappointed.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, that's a, a perfectly valid approach and completely the opposite of how I wanted to do it and how I had been brought up to do it by the Grateful Dead, where you go to the gig. Not knowing what order you're going to do things in, not knowing what licks you're going to play on a given song, and having something that relies on the moment, the mood everybody's in, and the feeling from the crowd and stuff. And we came, we were trained by the Grateful Dead not to demand You know, the platonic ideal of that song as executed in the studio. We wanted to hear a fresh, real time reading of that song that had something to do with what we were bringing to the party. And I, as a performer, now do that same thing. I never make a set list. The only time I ever make a list is if I have like a 20 or 30 minute time slot where there's no time to really develop a mood. Any other time I get on stage, I vastly prefer not to know what songs are going to happen because I want to get up there and start that first song and look around and see what's coming back at me from the people that are listening and what they respond to. And like in a house concert, you're in this intimate setting with like 40 or 50 people and you can look each one of them in the eye so you can get information back from them about what's happening in the the concert you know what i'm saying yeah it's so much more satisfying to do that and to be able to mess up and and stop a song i do this because i do looping and stuff every once in a while i'll make a mistake and i have to start over and i'll just say hey folks i'm just sharing my process with you here and i'll stop the song and start again because it's better to do that and admit your error and the audience would be right with you on it. Nobody ever goes, oh, you suck. They go, Oh, that's yeah. funny. Let's hear it again, right? So I'll say, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that messed up. Let me do it again. And that's it's it's a much more deeply satisfying and to me creative way to make music. And I just feel so incredibly lucky to be able to work that way in a huge variety of settings from solo house concerts to these big festival things where I'm playing with a bunch of total strangers and everything Mm -hmm. in between. And I I don't think I could be happier. I mean, selling a million records would certainly give me some financial wherewithal, but I don't think it's likely to have much more creative satisfaction and positive feedback than I get these days.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I love about the whole scene that is left of center or however you want to say it is is a lot of this you know it's the the festival feel the jazz fest kind of thing with the interchanging musicians that are playing with one another for maybe the first time maybe the 50th time and the different things that they are bringing to each one of those songs like i i'd say for me there's a much different feeling walking out of a concert by a band that you know has in their minds they've nailed it like in that Eaglesy kind of way of what you're describing. They may not be doing it to the extreme that the Eagles did it, but they are they have a set list that maybe is changing two or three songs every show. Like you two I'll say we we went my wife loves you too I grew up with you 2 we always go and see them. And when we see them, I have a much different feeling than I do with any of these other bands that are playing completely off the cuff and breathing new life into their song every single time they play it. It's just the involvement that you feel as a concert goer with that experience is beyond anything that you feel from a very regimented show.
2: Yeah, I was just last night, my wife and I went to the Freight and Salvage here in Berkeley to see Hot Tuna. It was mm. an acoustic set, and it's Jack Cassidy and Jorma Kalkinen, and they've been friends and musical compadres for more than 60 years
0: yeah it's crazy
2: and they sit up. it was an acoustic show and it's just the two of them sitting in chairs playing unplugged instruments and it was just magnificent they didn't they didn't have to make a plan they just started playing and they would converse just a little bit in between songs maybe but a lot of it was just Yorma would start playing jack would wait a bar or two and then just wade right in and the the sense of connectedness between the two of them and all the people in this room it's you know it's like a 350 seat theater with beautiful acoustics and everybody's sitting down and you could hear a pin drop in there and the communication among everybody in the room was just so deep and so it's such a great feeling and they weren't you know recreating the perfect versions of these songs they were just mm-hmm. hanging and playing and it was beautiful the whole night was just magical
0: yeah, that That's sounds... That's what I want in a show. Right. I love the fact that there is still this massive difference on any given night that they are playing together, even though they've been polishing it for so long. They're, they're not really polishing it. They're just continuing to mold it, I guess. Yeah,
2: Brent Midland told me once, when, when he joined The Grateful Dead, Bob Weir told him, you can't really rehearse for The Grateful Dead. You just have to do it. And that and and I, I that was a really interesting thing to to tell a guy as he was you know joining the band and it, it's the truth you can't when I'm practicing at home I'm not trying to perfect my version of a particular song you know I mean I'll work out making sure I have the strength to do the fingering of a chord and stuff when I'm working out an arrangement but for me practice at home is basically just making sure that I can hit every, any note that I think of at any given moment and it's it's developing my facility this sort of you you want to have instantaneous access and you want to be able to think of a note and hit it. So it's really just sort of I, I call it sort of keeping the vessel clean. So when mm-hmm. you get on stage with with people, you haven't met before, you know, you don't know what the, what the notes are going to be and what the licks are going to be, but you want to be able to hear what people are doing and respond to it and have access to everything you can on your side. So the practice is about being able to reach the notes and stuff, but the real business of that kind of music can't be practiced because it requires the other people around as well. So, it's again, it's just such a delight to be able to do this with so many different people and and know that I have the skill to do what I need to do and enough leadership. Or, you know, it's not even leadership. It's not that I need to be able to command what the other people are doing. It's that we all need to be able to command each other. One of the Mm -hmm. things that I tell people when describing this kind of music is that everybody in the band has the authority to dominate the rap and the good grace not to. Over the course of some short, medium, or long stretch of dialogue, they will migrate collectively toward that next thing and then launch into it, and ideally it just happens in this sort of perfect moment. But, you know, it's an imperfect form, and so a lot of times they don't, Go perfectly cleanly into it, but they go into it in a satisfying way that is the result of this dialogue that has been happening musically. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can also fall apart and it can happen in a way that, you know, I, there's a famously on the in 1972, there were a lot of these dark stars in the summer of 72, and you'll hear Bob start to play a little bit of. Oh no! Wait, I'm thinking of one where Jerry starts to play a little bit of Morning Dew, and either wasn't heard or was ignored by somebody. And the next thing you know, they're into El Paso,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it's like, okay, well, that's uh, one of the great sad decisions of all.
1: Yeah, now. seriously, they
2: could have had a do, they got the fucking <laughs> cowboy song instead, but it's perfectly fine, right? Uh, right. It, it just, it, it's just, it's just an example of that, that it could have gone one way and it went another way and it wasn't anybody's fault. And I don't think anybody came off stage and said, God damn it, Bobby. Yeah. He could have yeah. had a do, but you know, it's, it's, <laughs> that's the thing. It, it There's a, a phrase that comes from improvisational comedy from the, from the second city world, you know, mm-hmm. and that is yes. And when you're on stage doing an improvisation with people, you take what they say and you add to it you don't whip out an imaginary gun and shoot somebody dead and stop the scene cold right you, you, yeah you say yes and and that's how i feel about the musical exchange you listen to what people are doing and you add to it you fold it over and send it back with a harmonic enhancement or with a rhythmic answer you know you're 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 creating i use the phrase spontaneous mid-air architecture to de- to describe this because everybody is playing pieces that are structural members but it's all with reference to what the other people are saying when it's going well you're creating these beautiful musical forms that are are composed of everybody's line the drummer's playing in a particular groove the bass player's in a particular mode and playing notes spaced out in this particular way across the beat. And the keyboardist is playing, you know, a particular chord and the guitar player, you know what I mean? Everybody is playing something and we at the other end of the room are seeing this beautiful form in the air above the stage that that requires this grace from everybody who's playing. And when, when that's happening and it sort of, eludes the conscious control of the players phil lesh said this to me once in an interview it's like when it's going that well you can't put your finger in the wrong place and it's like you're not even human you're just a witness to it
0: yeah that feels about right It, it makes me as you're telling those stories it reminds me of being in the audience many times and everybody hears something during a song, and it's whispering to to one another, "Oh, here comes the other one, or here comes this, and then you know two minutes later it's something else, and their friends are mocking them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for or, for thinking it would be something else. that's why it's good to keep your guesses to yourself <laughs>
2: yeah in fact that that's you know later years as the Grateful Dead got older, Jerry's drug habits changed and stuff the that those moments of discovery kind of changed and the band became a little more predictable. And I remember Mm -hmm. a particular time, I think it was in January of 87 sitting in the balcony with a buddy at uh, uh, the San Francisco civic auditorium and in the second set, and they came out of the drums and started a particular song and we both kind of turned to each other and went, well, we know how this is going to end.
1: And
2: that was kind of, you know, it's kind of sad that you always knew that if it was this song, it was going to go to that song. Yeah. You know, and it's not that China Cat shouldn't go into Ryder. You know, it wasn't that it was a bad jam or something, but it, the band that I was playing in in those days, our line would be, let's do China Cat into anything but Rider. Let's find mm-hmm. a new destination for that jam. Let's see what suggests itself to us. So knowing that that Throwing Stones was always going to resolve into Not Fade Away with the crowd chant at the end and stuff was a sort of a disappointment. Yeah. It was like, I'd rather these guys were more open to it. It's totally understandable. Jerry was, you know, Jerry's life was kind of winding down over uh, a period of some years, and he had his ups and downs, you know, with his addictions. So sometimes the accidental songs, the unexpected songs, had this kind of aspect of desperation to shake things up. But it's also just that sense of inevitability that came because they weren't as open to magic and unexpected stuff as they had been in the years earlier, you know. Yeah. The thing is that along came this audience that didn't know about the unexpected thing, they sort of came to expect the the pat sequences and stuff. So they had an audience that was not demanding novelty from them. It was sort of settling into this more ritual thing. And so guys like me that wanted it to be wilder and more experimental were surrounded by people that were pretty happy with the more formalized and ritualized structure of it. So, you know, I, I didn't have the option of being pissed off at them about it I mm-hmm. had to go with, you know, what the Grateful Dead were delivering. It was always pretty satisfying on one level or another, even if I wished it would be more exploratory.
0: True. Yeah, I remember every Saturday night begging them to not play one more Saturday night.
2: Right. Why did that have to be? It was like <laughs> Samson and Delilah was only on Sunday, and One More Saturday Night was only on Saturday. How? Yeah. That's a little too on the nose, guys. In the yeah. 1970s, One More Saturday Night was a song that they'd end a first set with once in a while. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It didn't have to be everything didn't have to be sorted into these slots. It didn't, like, Bertha wasn't only of opening the second set song or opening the first set song, things like that. It's like, yeah. why do those things be sorted? But this also is part of the whole progression from improvisation to composition. David Grisman says that improvisation is fast composition. And it's been my experience over decades of being an improvisation musician and a composer that improvised music becomes composed music over time. As I have a lot of pieces that I do that are structured improvisations that are, begin with a loop, and then I have compositional elements that I introduce into these pieces. It's based on, if you look at a piece by Terry Riley called In C, it's really the sort of the canonical instance of this thing that there are specific musical gestures on the sheet music, but the performers have flexibility with which ones to use and when to use them and how to use them in the piece so every performance of in c is different but it's composed of composed elements that are used by the musicians improvisationally and i have pieces like that as a way of doing improvisation in a solo format right so i can mm-hmm. begin with the loop and then introduce these elements in random, different order, and use them differently as I'm progressing. But over time, all of my arrangements acquire little composed pieces that sort of stay in, like a lick will that I'll do in a in between lines in a certain song. Oh, OK, that works. I'll keep that. And over time, mm-hmm. there'll be more of those. And you heard the Grateful Dead do that as well. Song, Bobby Weir's songs, in particular, would enter the repertoire unformed or not fully formed. And we would listen to the band over the course of a tour or a year, gradually find their way into those songs and they would become more composed. And interestingly, they would also grow in power and also the open improvised sections would have more juice to them as the other parts of it became more composed. You know what I mean? As you got more structure, gave you more freedom in a certain way. Yeah, totally. So we were listening yeah. to this, this dialogue among the musicians and listening to the songs sort of become more composed. And that was part of the creative process of engagement over time. That's the way they kept us coming back. And the way I like to keep my performances fresh the same way is by – giving the songs room to breathe and improving them as I go, but still leaving plenty of room for instantaneous interpretation and in the moment delivery of the the, the present mood. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was one of the interesting things about the seventies and the eighties with them, with, you know, the, Looks like Rain was a perfect example of that. Like you got to see that song evolve as it was first brought out and to what it became as a as its staple version, I guess.
2: Yeah, we also could hear that in like 1972 playing in the band. When they started doing playing in the band in the end of 71 or in the summer of 71, I guess, there wasn't that much of a jam in it. And you heard them mm-hmm. In fact, the version on the Skull & Roses record doesn't have a jam in it at all. Yeah, And over the course of 72, particularly on the Europe 72 tour, you hear this song really start to develop and the the band finds this mode that they're going to improvise in. And that culminates in a 45-minute version playing in the band in Seattle in May of 1974, right, that just came out on that Pacific Northwest box set. Mm -hmm. So the... Songs would be introduced, and they would find their way into them. Scarlet Begonias, same thing. The first version of Scarlet Begonias didn't have much of a jam. And then over time, that just sort of became this beautiful canvas onto which the dead would create spontaneous art for our delight every time we heard them play it.
0: Yeah. I've been thinking about this, as you're saying, and talking about your musicianship and and your brother and your sister as well was music something that was passed down into your family or did that just kind of come out of nowhere for the three of you well
2: it sort of skipped a generation actually in my family my my parents were not musicians they gave me a violin when i was really young and then took it away from me a couple of days later and gave me a <laughs> clarinet instead <laughs> I started playing the clarinet in grade school and learning music, and I played in school orchestras and bands and was in a marching band briefly when I was a kid, you know. I switched to guitar and songwriting when I was 15, but I had been playing music. My maternal grandmother was a concert violinist, and I believe my father's father played a little violin and stuff, but not professionally. Hmm. Uh, my mother and her one of her sisters were both fine artists, visual artists, painters and stuff, oddly enough. And my dad was a graphic artist, so my parents were both into visual art, but our all three of us as kids were interested in music. My brother wound up not as a performer, but in the technical end. He's a sound designer and has worked in the very high end in the world of music uh, as an acoustician. My sister... Mm did not develop a musical skill at all and went into the banking business and stuff. So I'm kind of the one that stuck with it and put his creativity forward. But we were always encouraged by our parents to be creative and allowed by our parents to choose our own path, which I'm infinitely grateful for.
0: For sure. And so your dad, just to bring this into that side of it at all was born he would have been born what in the 30s
2: 25 both my parents were 25. born in 1925 i'm a textbook baby boomer my dad was a brooklyn kid hmm. who lied about his age and joined the army and when he was 17 went to war met a nice jewish girl in london they married when they were 19 wow Came back across the pond uh, and and lived with my dad's family in Brooklyn when they were young married. Then they jumped in a car and drove across the country to Los Angeles, settled in the San Fernando Valley, and had three kids, of which I am the middle child, born in 1953. So I'm a textbook baby boomer, grew up in the L.A. suburbs, Uh, and the child of of parents who... uh, you know, struggled through to be middle class, but were able to give their kids uh, an
0: education that involved literacy and creativity. And did you all move up to uh, Northern California, or was that something that took place after you were already out of schooling?
2: That was a family thing. My dad, My dad struggled with business stuff. He was a salesman when I was a kid and then had a couple of failed businesses. So he wound up taking a job that brought us to Northern California in 1966 when I was 12. So we came to San Francisco area in time for all that psychedelic stuff to happen. Uh, although I was a little too young to really participate in it and I was a witness to it and on the periphery of it and got to be a you know, pot smoking hippie kid in, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. But uh, the family moved up there when you know when the three of us were still in school.
0: Okay. And did your parents live uh there throughout the rest of their lives or
2: Yeah, both my parents my parents did something very interesting. Both of them in their 40s went back to school and got degrees and got into the social work business. My mom started as an art teacher. She taught at a private school. Um, when I was a kid. And then when we moved up north, she got involved in social services kind of administration stuff. She worked at a Jewish community center and then ran um, the Oakland YWCA for many years. So both my parents went back to school in their 40s and got degrees. My dad went to work for the Department of Social Services in Santa Clara County and was a a, um, social services bureaucrat for the rest of his career. So, um, again, I think they did something very inspiring by, you know, rearranging their lives in middle age and finding their right livelihood, you know, rather than settling into unhappy work lives. So they they led us by taking control of their lives. They inspired us by reinventing themselves, you know, in, in their 40s and finding something that they wanted to do. And they also... just allowed us and encouraged us partly because they couldn't, they, my parents didn't have any money to send us to school. So they kind of didn't have the leverage to demand that we study a particular thing. My sister Mm -hmm. went through school and got a degree. My brother couldn't wait to get the hell out of the school system. When he graduated high school, he was out of there. He went off and left town and became a hippie uh, and then came back and got into the audio business on his own steam. And Mm -hmm. I, went to San Jose State for a couple years, but I wasn't really, didn't temperamentally suited to being a student. I, I now I regret what a stupid, you know, how stupid it was for me to squander an opportunity to get a real education. But I did learn things in school. I dropped out, followed my own career, became a writer and a musician, and then through a series of accidents, a broadcaster and stuff. But my parents didn't, require us to do any particular thing they just insisted that we become ourselves and be as fierce as we could in pursuit of our own creativity
0: which that not only is remarkable that they did that i mean massive applause to them for taking a step that i mean to me would be frightening to do in my 40s as well as you know You're so settled in something that you're doing. So, going out and chasing something that you want to do is always, uh, regardless of age, I guess, is kind of always kind of scary. But them leading you guys by that example, like you said, is huge. Yes. So, let's go into what you were saying as your kind of accidental meandering into broadcasting did that all happen?
2: My first Grateful Dead show was in March of 72. I moved to Berkeley in 73 and fell in with a bunch of deadhead musicians and kept going to shows and stuff. But I started writing for music magazines in my early twenties. There was a, um, I did some record reviews for an underground paper when I was at San Jose state, but I started my career really at BAM magazine which was a free biweekly published in the Bay Area starting in 76. And I did this basically because it was an opportunity. I wanted to get free records and concert tickets and stuff, and I had some skill, (laughs) and I wanted to meet people and learn. So becoming a music journalist was a way to enhance my education because i got to do things like go to la and interview leo fender and interview the producer of the doobie brothers and ben halen and interview lindsay buckingham and fly to michigan and do an interview with joe walsh in a hotel and things like that mm. i got to learn and meet people and make contacts and just develop my awareness of how all this stuff worked and it, it led to other staff positions. I went to work for Mix Magazine, which was publishing another magazine for musicians. I, I, in other words, I, I did music journalism for about 10 years. And In the course of doing that, one thing was I went, I went on a press junket to Jamaica in 1982. I was working for Record Magazine and Mix Magazine but I went down there to, to cover The Grateful Dead with the possibility of doing an article for Rolling Stone about the dead. Wow. While I was there with them at this insane three-day music festival, I met Peter Simon, who was a photographer and author, and he was beginning to work on a book about The Grateful Dead. And I schmoozed him up and said, hey, I got some photos you might want, things like that. And Peter stayed in touch, and some months later invited me to collaborate with him on that book. I found out years later that while they were in Jamaica schmoozing with the Grateful Dead about Peter's book, Phil Lesh told them you should hire David Gans to write the text for your book. The guy that you've been working with won't, won't work out, he won't do well with the Grateful Dead. You should hire him. Wow. I did not know this until years <laughs> later, like 20, 30 years later that that huh. had happened. So they, They hired me to write that, write the text for Peter's book. And that led to uh, my first book with Peter was called Playing in the Band, an oral and visual portrait of the Great Dead. In 1984, KFOG, a local rock station, had started a radio show called The Deadhead Hour. And I appeared on that show as a guest to promote my book and uh, got interested in doing radio. The guy that was hosting the show and producing the show was seriously overworked. He was doing the morning drive show five days a week and had his own specialty show called the Sunday Night Idiot Show. It was a wonderful guy named M. Dung who died last year. Hmm. But I wound up being one of the contributors to the show, and then the station sort of recognized that I was sort of better suited to do it had more knowledge about the music and stuff than the other guy who was pretty overworked. So eventually they asked me to take responsibility for doing the show every week. And then other stations started calling and asking if they could carry my show too. Mm. And I had permission from the Grateful Dead. I went to a band meeting, you know, got official permission to do this and stuff. So I never planned to do any of this. It just happened. I just followed that I went through a door that opened up in front of my face and I followed it and it led me to this thing which has been my career ever since and I never made a plan to do any of it I just improvised my way into a ridiculously happy and satisfying life
0: the work that you did on there it's it's so funny to me to think back and I I used to listen to the Grateful Dead hour back in the early 90s and just thinking about the connection that that made because that's during the time that you're having to work so hard to be and p out to get shows and um you know i i was very fortunate because i knew a taper very well um who lived very close to me so i was able to get my hands on a lot of stuff that way but for people who didn't do that yeah. and who maybe even weren't able to go to more than a couple shows a year, like the Grateful Dead Hour was fantastic.
2: I have to say, one of the funnest things about my current life as a touring musician is getting to have these conversations with people that have come up. You know, they want, like, I, I sit at the, the table and sell books and CDs after the gig, and people come up to me and shake my hand and go, Man, you were the source for this stuff when I was a kid, man. You know, I just found, I tuned in, found you on the radio once, and I was a goner, and I usually say to them, well, I hope your parents have forgiven me, because it really is an honor and a privilege to have been in people's lives that way, to have been sort of the Johnny Appleseed of this music for so long, and I wasn't promoting the lifestyle, I wasn't telling people to take drugs and buy tie-dyes, I was just telling people to listen to this music. Yeah, yeah. I was an evangelist for this music because it's so wonderful. It's so complicated and so rewarding to engage with over time. And I just wanted to share my enthusiasm and my knowledge of it. And it's been just a delight to meet hundreds and hundreds of people over the course of my touring life who just wanted to thank me for bringing them into this world.
0: Yeah. The music is so important. and for how many people in, again, in the left of center scene or in the jam band scene, or even in the the pockets that are a little bit more stretched out from the rock and roll side of the jam band scene that are like in the jazz portion of it or whatever. I've talked to some of those musicians and how much listening to the Grateful Dead taught some of them and you know the lessons of improvisation and listening to the other band members and all the all that stuff that we talked about is so important to the conversations that are happening today with so many different artists is i mean that's a humongous footprint that they have on music
2: and there's so many musicians that are acknowledging the influence of the grateful dead now you know there were some years i it it seemed like in the 80s there was this anti-grateful dead thing that was just part of the whole punk ethos of we're getting rid of all you hippies and dinosaurs and stuff Mm. but then the sort of anti the reactionary charge wore off over time and then there's just more people that just grew up with that music and it influenced them And now it's sort of cool to admit that you like The Grateful Dead all along. You know, guys like Ryan Adams came along and, you know, Mm -hmm. and Bob Dylan hooked up with The Grateful Dead and stuff. So it, it, and now there's all these, you know, great young musicians, like the guys that are doing J-Rad and and, uh, Circles Around the Sun and uh, all these great young musicians that are just unabashedly taking this Grateful Dead, this amazing songbook, and making new music with it. Mm-hmm. All these people that do Grateful Dead in their own styles. There's a terrific band out here based in California called Wake the Dead. And they're all Celtic musicians. They play Irish music all the time, you know, as their main thing. Mm. But they get together a couple times a year and play a bunch of gigs doing this sort of Celtic style interpretations of Grateful Dead music, and it's just delightful to hear it. Mm-hmm. There's Grateful Shred, and Shred is Dead, and there's reggae. You know, on Martha's Vineyard, there's a band called the Grateful Dread. There, so, you know, you could take Grateful Dead music and run it through all these filters of other kinds of music. I'm working with a fellow from Hawaii named Stephen Inglis. He invited me to sing harmonies. He did a double CD of slack key Hawaiian style Grateful Dead. Wow. Called "Cut the Dead Some Slack." It's a marvelous, marvelous record, and I sang harmonies on the record. And we've been playing together. We've done several tours in the last year or so of me and him on acoustic guitars, doing these beautiful improvisations. Like we'll play "Dark Star" into Warfred, into "Days Between," just the two of us, you know. Mm-hmm. And we're we're working with a harpist as well. We've got a record in the can with a harpist named Manella Lauren doing these sweet acoustic Hawaiian style interpretations of Grateful Dead music. The the songs are wonderful and the songs are are open to interpretation and I, it, the music is going to live forever. We we knew that and now we're seeing that it's it's true. The music is going to outlive the people who invented it and the first generation of fans, we're already into our fourth generation of Grateful Dead fans, you know.
0: Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Going to uh, Santa Clara and seeing the the Fair the Well shows there and seeing the massive range of ages and how many people are having these different experiences. You know, all the people, of course, that never got to see Jerry play ever. And all of the people that were along since the late 60s that are there, it was really cool to see. And I know that that's, you know, very commonplace that these people are out in the world. But being amongst all these people is fantastic. I I think I had a little bit of that experience at uh, a couple of years ago at JRAD in LA. And they were still playing a smaller place. And I was actually really surprised how many older people were there and I probably just wasn't really thinking about who would be going to see this band and seeing the smiles on these faces of people over 50 who are witnessing this energy that that band brings and kind of like how we were talking about the difference of the dead of the 70s to the late 80s, 90s. Of them putting these two songs together that it, that the dead maybe never even did is just so cool to witness and see that completely different breath being put into all of this music. Yes, I'm definitely interested in that Hawaiian album that you're talking about too. Uh,
2: it's called "Cut the Dead Some Slack." The artist's name is Stephen Inglis, I N G L I S. I recommend it very highly. I'm glad you see. You know the gray ponytail crowd checking out the younger music because there's also a niche for the other, the other end of that spectrum, the faithful recreation, you know, what dark Star orchestra is doing obviously mm-hmm. makes them very popular and they're doing the opposite. And they're doing the thing of trying to create an authentic uh, reenactment of specific eras of grateful dead and stuff. So they're preserving the traditions of the grateful dead in a, a, a way that's, you know, it's not the way I want to approach the music, but I really appreciate what they're doing for it. And I, I, I remember the first time I got it about Dark Star Orchestra, I was, I was at a music festival with them in Ohio. This was, geez, 15, more than 15 years ago now. And I'm, I'm listening to them play, and they were playing a show from 1978, and I closed my eyes and it really sounded and felt like that. 78 vibe, and this young woman dancing next to me goes, I'm so glad that they're doing this so I can get a feel for what it was like to be at a dead show. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's great, you know. And I hope that girl is now going to hear J Rad and hearing how the music is being taken forward. But it's great that Dark Star Orchestra is able to do such a, a good job of preserving it. So we have the preservationists and the expansionists all keeping this music moving in in various directions.
0: I agree with that 100% because when I saw dark star orchestra, I was feeling that same thing. I was really enjoying that. It was a show. I think when I went and saw them, it was a uh, 76, it was actually a 76 uh, Jerry Garcia band show that they played, which was really interesting. And I, it kind of completely caught me off guard because I was fully expecting something, just a grateful dead show. Uh, But it was really cool. It was, you know, knowing what they were tapping into. And for me, I didn't get to see any, I I would, would have only been four. So I definitely (laughs) did not see any JGB back then, but it was, it is, there is something to definitely be said about the preservation of it as well. So, yeah. Well, I think we'll kind of wrap this up. Where do you want to send everybody to find all things uh, David Gans?
2: Well, I'm on Facebook in various guises um, under my own name as a musician. I have a website, dgans.com, that is not very well maintained, but has links that will take you to my touring schedule and my music and stuff. I'm in all of the usual places. You can find me on Spotify and CD Baby and uh, iTunes Music Store and stuff. I kind of I'm more interested in promoting my music than the radio show and stuff, but all of it fits together. Mm -hmm. So I'd love people to come and hear me play live. I'm available for house concerts and things like that. So dgans.com d-g-a-n-s.com would be the place to start looking for me.
0: You're going to have uh, new music coming out next year as well, it sounds like.
2: Well, we're hoping... We're right now in the fundraising phase for this record. We're, the band we're, we're calling Fragile Thunder. It's me, Stephen Inglis, and Anella Lauren. So that's two, two guitars and a harp. Not harmonica, but harp. And we went in the studio with Robin Sylvester, the bassist of Rat Dog, and made an acoustic record that has two long dark stars on it and a couple other things. And we're in the process of trying to get that funded right now, and we're hoping to release it in April and do some touring. So you can look for Fragile Thunder on Facebook as well. If you're following me, you'll eventually be hit on to contribute to a Kickstarter or a, a Indiegogo campaign to get this record out, and we hope to release it in the spring.
0: Excellent. So many different ways to tap into your music and tap into everything that you do, and I really, really appreciate this conversation. I I know that a lot of people are um, anxious to hear some of these stories. So thanks for taking the time out, David.
2: It's been a pleasure, Tim. Thank
0: you. Okay. And that is the end of my conversation with David Gans. Again, Huge thanks to David for taking so much time out of a Sunday to have that conversation. We had been talking about doing this episode for, uh, gosh, uh, close to a year now, I think. And I'm excited that he was so ready and into jumping back into it when I hit him up late this year. So thank you, David, and thank you to your wife for giving that time to us as well. Again, you can find David in all of those places he mentioned. Please make sure that you check him out, at least give him a listen, and maybe buy some of his stuff. Check him out on tour. I would love to have him have some people come up to him and say, "Hey, I heard you on the Daddy Unscripted podcast and that was insert adjective here. Whatever. I'm not going to tell you what to tell him, but that would be great for him to get that response from from any of you who are listening now. Again, you can find Daddy Unscripted all over all of the social media on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, all as Daddy Unscripted. You can send me an email at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. I would love to keep... I always say this. Should I say the exact same thing? It's true, though. I do love getting your guys' feedback. I do love hearing who you think I should have on. I do love you guys telling me, hey, you should open your podcast up to people who are not just dads. Or, hey, you should stop doing that. It's called Daddy Unscripted. What are you doing? I've been listening to a lot of other podcasts lately, though, I will let you know. And one of the ones that I've been listening to a lot on the Osiris podcast network is called Dead to Me, which if you haven't listened to it yet, go and check it out. They are about six episodes in now. They might be seven by the time that this podcast is out. But there are two hosts, Casey Ray and his friend Eduardo. And it's really cool what they do. The tie in that they make to The Grateful Dead and culture and how the music affected so many people, including an episode talking about Joseph Campbell. It's really one of the cool things about the podcast that they have so many guests on that maybe you don't know are fans of The Grateful Dead. In their sixth episode called Dead Medicine, they have on an executive producer of CNN Tonight talking about days of her life as a fan of the Grateful Dead, they have just really cool people on and very interesting conversations that are extremely unique in the way that they are tying the Grateful Dead music together with people. So check out Dead to Me when you can. And I greeted all of you in Dutch. I will now say goodbye to you in Dutch. Which means see you later in Dutch. Thanks everybody for joining and a new podcast episode should be out for all of you in the next two to three weeks.